clang, clang, clang went the trolley. Ding, ding, ding went the bell. It's Liza with the Z, not Lisa with an S, cause Lisa with an S goes snuds. Let me hear you say, hey, Miss Carter. Don't cry for me, Argentina. There can be a hundred people in the room. Liza! I'm Robbie Latour. And I'm Tequila Mockingbird. Welcome to Divas on Divas. The podcast where we make our diva obsession your problem. Tequila, can you believe that we're finally here? What a road we have travelled. But here we are, podcast record, day one, episode one. This How is, exciting. It is. It's so exciting. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me in your makeshift <laughs> podcast studio in your home. <laughs> like you're a stranger to my lounge room. Cute. <laughs> we're two and a half trial episodes down. So this has no excuse to be bad in any way. No, it has no excuse to be anything less than perfect. You're um, in very safe hands, listeners. No. <laughs> Please don't listen to him. I'm being held against my will. Please, somebody help me. No, it has. It's been a long, arduous road to get here, but here we are recording our very first episode, official we are. episode. We have uh, we have our mimosas at the ready and our beautiful Diva on Divas wine glasses, which are yes. pretty much the third and fourth most important components to this show. Yes, the, the, the other real host of the show is alcohol. Is alcohol. Um, we wouldn't be able to do it without it. Divas on Divas, can... brought to you by alcohol. <laughs> It should be no secret to anyone that you and I are quite diva-obsessed in terms of iconic divas. Yes, I think so. And it was pointed out to us uh, about six months ago after we went and saw the movie Judy by your husband very pointedly said to us, well, you two should start a podcast with the amount of stuff that you know about divas. Oh. Mm, your tone seems very pointed right now. <laughs> you know what? Screw you. We will start a podcast. And here we are. <laughs> we are going to be running our very first season of episodes, highlighting a different diva each Time. So each episode is going to be based on a different diva. Starting off today with the diva that started it all. Yes, of course, the one and only Judy Garland. Yeah, this did all start to killer when you and I went and saw the movie Judy last year, um, uh, which put me, I mean, you've always been quite diva obsessed. You are a plethora of information on so many of the divas that we're going to be talking about. And I have thoroughly enjoyed all of the research I've thrown myself into getting to know more about the divas that I knew a little bit about already. After the movie Judy, I came home and I watched about five or six hours straight of Judy Garland documentaries on YouTube. And of course that led you into the Liza Minnelli rabbit hole and oh, we yes. took it from there and it steamrolled into this into this idea for the birth of this podcast. This is how it's going to work. We've broken the show up into four segments. The first thing that we're going to talk about is the basic. It's going to be basically a rundown of everything you need to know about these divas from start to finish, from birth to where they are now. All those stats and figures are going to be a part of the segment that we're going to call Where Do We Begin? And we're going to intro that segment with the help of Shirley Bassey. You'll hear this. Yes, that is, of course, the wonderful Shirley Bassey helping us kick off our very first segment of the show. And from there, we will go into our next segment, which we've cleverly titled, <laughs> Isn't It Iconic? <laughs> and you'll hear a little bit of this. And isn't it iconic? Don't you think? That's right. With the help of Alanis Morissette and some beautiful backing vocals from you and I, we will be delving into iconic moments that you and I love about 
the diva that we're showcasing in that app. Of course, we've done our own research on this. So you and I have gone away, picked a few things that we want to talk about, and we'll be sharing it with each other for the first time on this podcast. Yes, we will, Robert. We will be sharing completely separate information. And sometimes we might run aground if we find that we've doubled up on information. Well, great, then the, we'll just have more to say about just that. Just more to say about it. Of course. Now, our third segment is going to be Mary. Did you know? Mary, did you know? Thank you, Tony Braxton. We are going to be running. <laughs> so this is the segment where we're going to just tell you a few lesser known facts that you may or may not have known about the diva that we're covering that week. Yeah, stuff that surprised us while we were doing our research. That'll bring us to the final portion of our show, which is specific to why it is that you and I as gay men really love these divas and why we as a queer community as a whole obsess about these divas. Yes, there could be many traits as to why we as a queer community are obsessed with them and we're going to deep dive into that. And that's going to be in our segment called Why We So Obsessed With You and who else could help us intro that than Mariah herself? And I was like, why are you so obsessed with me? I love it. Oh, God. Without further ado, it is the Judy episode. Let's get into what started all of this, our love for Judy Garland, with our first segment. Where do I begin? Judy Garland was born Frances Ethel Gum on June 10th, 1922 in Grand Rapids, Minneapolis. She sadly passed away June 22nd, 1969, just days after her 47th birthday of a suspected barbiturate overdose. Isn't that a mouthful? She was the youngest of three girls, the Gum sisters, and her parents were vaudevillian stars. Her mother, Ethel, worked the girls to make them famous, starting them out in a theatre that they owned. So Judy, or Baby, as she was more commonly known, was enrolled into dance school at the age of six and made her film debut in 1929 at the age of seven. Yeah, truly truly a child Child star. star, I mean, she even talks about having memories of singing from the age of two and a half, where she just, she wouldn't stop until her dad would drag her off the stage. Yeah, I think the most famous iteration of that that I know of is there is a story where she got up and started singing Jingle Bells and they couldn't... Continuously. Continuously. Over and, over and, and they over couldn't again. stop her until <laughs> someone dragged her off the stage. Yeah, she's she's truly, when we talk about, you know, born, born for the stage, she never had a hope of not being a performer. The Gum Sisters continued to tour the Vaudeville circuit, uh, but eventually changed their name to the Garland Sisters in 1934. Because critics would often get their names wrong and refer to them as the Glum, the Glum Sisters. sisters yeah. Which uh, I don't think from like a marketing perspective is really great. You don't want like the word glum <laughs> associated with your act. Apparently just introducing them as the Gum Sisters would occasionally get a laugh from the audience too. So people were like, <laughs> if you want to be taken seriously, maybe, maybe switch it up. Garland sounds a little bit prettier. <laughs> By 1935, the group had disbanded. Judy, she was signed to MGM Grand when she was only 13 years old. She appeared in a few movies with the studio, but of course her huge break for her was The Wizard of Oz in 1938. Yeah. If you only know a tiny bit about Judy Garland, you know that she was Dorothy, of course, in The Wizard of Oz. She has 13 albums, six of which are live, 67 singles, and has contributed to 14 soundtrack albums. She's also starred in 35 films. Obviously, some of the most notable of those films are The Wizard of Oz, Meet Me in St. Louis, and the original Star is Born. Of course, she's responsible for such songs as Somewhere Over the Rainbow, The Trolley Song, Zing Went the Strings of My Heart, and Come Rain or Come Shine. Also, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas, which I 
didn't know. She was a woman of many marriages. God, did she have some marriages? <laughs> in, uh, in 1941, she was married to songwriter David Rose. That lasted three years. In 1945, she married the director, Vincent Minnelli, and they were married for six years, of course, producing the one and only Liza Minnelli I through mean. that marriage. In 1952, she started the longest marriage that she had with producer Sidney Luft, where she had her two other children, Lorna Luft and Joey Luft. And in 1965, she married actor Mark but they separated after five months. I've got a little bit more on why that might have been later in the show. Okay. And then, of course, in 1969, she married then music manager Mickey Deans and was married to him until she passed away. In terms of awards, she had two Academy Award nominations for A Star Is Born and Judgment at Nuremberg. Have you seen Judgment at Nuremberg? So Judgment at Nuremberg is when she plays a German woman who was dating... A Nazi war criminal? Yeah. I've seen snippets of it and she acts her ass off yeah, in that there's movie. That, there's that scene where she's in the dock and she's being questioned by the by the prosecutor that and she's giving this she gives this monologue and it's it's so beautifully done. And she wasn't really known for her acting in that sort of sense. She was more of like a musical star and she yeah. done a lot of like song and dance movies and things like that. So to see her in a role that it was, was a proper heavy like yeah. Role, right? Yeah. So two Academy Award nominations, no wins unfortunately. But she does have one Golden Globe for A Star Is Born. That is, of course, the original Star Is Born, which has been remade twice since then. Three times since then. Three times Three since times then. since then, yes. To which she was also nominated for Judgment at Nuremberg. And she received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes in 1962. She has two Grammys from five nominations and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Grammys in 1997. Plus five inductions to the Grammy Hall of Fame. Five inductions she's been a part of. Five separate crazy? inductions to the Grammy Hall of yeah, Fame. Yeah, for like, different things different, of her, different yeah. works of hers. Yeah. That's so incredible. It's iconic. Yeah, isn't it iconic? <laughs> um, she's had three Emmy Award nominations. She's received one special... Tony Award, and she has two Hollywood Walk of Fame stars. Very interestingly, they both went down at the same time. So she got one for motion pictures and one for recording, both in 1960. Wow, that's news to me. I yeah, I didn't that. even know that they did I that. I knew that she had one. I've seen like one of them, and it, I think it was the motion picture one that I've seen, but I didn't know that she has mm. one for... Are they next to each other? They're not at all. So they're oh, wow. on completely different streets. Because the Hollywood stars... It has their name and then it has a little icon on what they're famous for. So it's got like either the movie role, either the film camera or musical and yeah. Sounds (laughs) Sounds like. (laughs) So yeah, so she got one for both at the same time. But yeah, that was Streets Away. So she probably had to run from one 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 to the other. (laughs) One presentation ceremony to the other. Her um, her handprints are outside uh, Gorman's Gorman's Chinese Chinese Theatre as well. Speaking of running from one thing to another, Robert, why don't we just crack into Isn't It Iconic? All right, can I go first? Because I would love you to. (laughs) I'd love nothing more. Because I feel like we're both going to have this down, and I feel like it's such a staple. We can't talk about Judy Garland without talking about Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So one of the things I love about Somewhere Over the Rainbow is that she knew that it was her bread and butter. She knew that it was a crowd favourite. She knew how important this song was to so many people. And I believe the song was really important to her. So whenever she performed it live, it wasn't, you know, she often had this really tongue-in-cheek, funny way of 
singing and present him. But this song, she always gave the respect that it deserved. She never made a joke about it. She was always quite earnest. She often sat down on the floor to sing it, which is a really intimate thing to do when you're performing to thousands and thousands of people in these giant theatres, but to sit down on the floor and just and just perform this song. She would never spoof. That was going to lead into one of my points for Isn't It Iconic, is um, she would never spoof The Wizard of Oz. Many times was she asked to for different variety TV shows and things like that to do like a, a comedy take on, wouldn't it be funny to have Judy Garland here now as like an, an older person coming back to play Dorothy Gale and yeah. like have her in and do this and we'll do like a funny bit. And she always declined yeah. and she because she always knew the reverence and I suppose the icon status that that song had and that song held for her and that how much it meant to her personally and how much that song meant to so many people around the world as well. There's there's one particular recording, as soon as I, this, no, as soon as I say this, I know you're going to know what I'm talking about. There's one particular recording, really sort of old, really, really old footage of her performing this song where she's sitting on the floor, inexplicably dressed in some sort of chimney sweep outfit. Oh, you know why? Because we talked about this points. before. <laughs> Okay, because I would really love to know because she does. She's in that outfit as well um, on the Judy Garland show with Liza. They do a. She must have had this sketch where she kind of dresses up as a chimney sweep or something. Yes. So during sidebar, we'll get back to somewhere over the rainbow. But why was she dressed like that? So this is this is what she did. So it was what you're talking about is the 1951 concerts that came after she did the Palace, right? So she would do Over the Rainbow, and it was her idea to do it dressed as this vagrant character. This They called it The Tramp, and it was a character that she played in a movie with Fred Astaire called Easter Parade. Right. And I don't know the relevance. I couldn't find any right. information as to why she wanted to be that character from that specific movie yeah. to play. I don't know if she'd done like a bit at the end of her concerts and she just happened to already be in that costume. Maybe she does. Yeah, that's what I feel like it's from whatever and happens before And then it segues then. into obviously her encore, which is her yeah. still being dressed as this tramp character, in yeah. inverted commas, and, and singing this song. And it is... I can't speak for your experience. There's something experience. so haunting about it because of the because of the way she looks, but also the performance. But also, and it's a very old recording. It's been touched up a little bit. We'll pop it on the website. So definitely have a look and have a listen because it's something that you really need to see. But it it sounds as though she's sort of sobbing through it. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. And it, it's heartbreaking to watch because without even knowing the backstory of this character that she was playing from Easter Parade, it is, it's heartbreaking to see her there in her full rawness, wearing these fingerless gloves and this ratty clothing and she's blacked her teeth out and she's got a painted on beard and it's, it's so haunting to see and it is mm. beautiful. There's also, obviously, there's a performance of this on a, a very famous Judy album live at Carnegie Hall, which she recorded in 1961. That's a, there's, that's a version of a live performance of her that has really great audio because it was recorded for a live recording album. What I love about it is the track actually goes for almost six minutes. The song itself only goes for 3 minutes 43, but at the end, there's two full minutes of applause and they've kept the whole thing in on this studio of applause. And it just, it really gives you an insight of what it would have been like to be there and the reverence that the audience had for her and had for this song. I agree. Like, it, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see someone of that calibre with that amount of talent performing in front of you. I mean... You've seen Bettina Buttons perform, though. <laughs> When you're good to mama. Patina <laughs> oh. Buttons was my drag character that lasted all of... A couple of minutes. 14 months, maybe. <laughs> and what a and wonderful about, 14 months it was. And about 13 months too long. <laughs> but she never returned. <laughs> 
speaking of Over the Rainbow, so this classic ballad was obviously written for The Wizard of Oz, which is one of the most like best known and most watched films of all time. And it was the role that really skyrocketed her to the heady heights of like the greatest success you'll ever know in your entire life. That gets someone a start. And it was, she became from that MGM's most, I think her the, their highest paid star mm. at the age of 16. Yeah. So obviously she wasn't treated really well through, throughout that film um, by the producers and the directors. Yeah, which, which I think it's important we should touch on that. You know, Judy had a really troubling upbringing. Her mother, she loved her father. Her and her dad were really, really close. Her dad passed away when she was 13 years old, and I think that was really hard for Judy. But by that stage, she was already kind of living this stage life. and On her way to stardom. Yeah, and, and her mum was quite happy to sort of, like, sell her into that, I think, sadly enough, as it is to say. She was sort of the... I guess the original stage mother, Ethel Gum, you know, she really wanted her daughter to succeed and she was happy for the uh, for the head of the studios and, you know, for her minders to do whatever they needed to do with her. And, of course, there was no child labour laws back then and it's very widely reported that Judy has had, had a lifelong struggle with uh, drug addiction and it started in those early days when they were giving her pills to get her skinnier even though she was quite slim, um, but they wanted her to be skinnier and they wanted her to be able to perform. You know, they were making three movies with her a year, which is pretty much, you know, a full-time schedule all year round. And because of that, she wasn't able to sleep, so they put her on other pills to help her sleep and then they would give her other pills to wake her up and help her perform. And, yeah, it, it is like what a checkered way to start start your young adult life. Yeah, and even at 16 as well, she was she was considered too grown a woman to be portraying this this child, this 13-year-old Dorothy Gale in The Wizard of Oz that was supposed to be mm. every like a poster child for every teen girl everywhere. And because she had developing a developing I see what you're doing body with your hands there. <laughs> breasts, I'm doing breasts. What you can't see listeners is I'm simulating breasts on myself. Which sounds much more exciting to you than it actually looks in real life. But she did. She had quite an ample bosom. Mm. And the studio would strap her breasts down. Yeah, right. For every yeah, day of really the shoot. Because they never wanted her to look like a, she, a They wanted her to be a, the girl that, next door. Like yeah. a young girl. I think they, I, they... Even prior to The Wizard of Oz, the studio always really struggled with where she fits. I mean, one of the things about Judy is that she came, she pretty much came out of the womb singing like a 40-year-old woman. She has this maturity maturity yeah. to her voice. And when, you know, when you hear her sing, it's it's unlike, she has a unique voice unlike any that I've ever heard before or like since her, you know. And, and they didn't really know how to make her fit in terms of, you know, who was she because she wasn't, she what she didn't quite fit into this pretty young girl image, but she also wasn't really old enough to be this sort of sex symbol image either. Obviously, they sort of did get that. <laughs> they believe that they, got, they got that balance, you know, for want of a better term, because they didn't get it in a great way. But they they sort of figured out how to how to get her to fit into something with the Wizard of Oz, and that's why it sort of was such a big hit. But what a grueling thing it was for her to go through at such a young age. She was only 17. I think that also really sort of sets the sets the, the benchmark for what her, the rest of her life 
was going to be like. I don't know that you can't come. I don't know that you can come back from something. And she couldn't. And she never did. And And eventually, that's what got her. Is that she never ended that learnt cycle that she had of the reliance and the dependence on the prescription medication to get her through performing and get her to sleep and and all that sort of stuff. It just yeah, it would be stressful. Yeah. One of the stories that I do really love, just to turn into something a little bit chirpier about The Wizard of Oz. I mean, people talk about Judy. She was a really she, – she, I mean, you can see from from the, the bits and pieces and the interviews that she's done, she could be such an enigmatic – I can't say that word. Enigmatic. 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 She could be such an enigmatic no. – She could be such an enigmatic – She can be such an enigmatic – Is that right? Yeah. She can be such an enigmatic <laughs> – such a big character and such a lovable character. She really turned it on at times. Yeah, really enigmatic. There's these beautiful stories. <laughs> oh, God. Got it. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> God, I hate you. One of the little people that played the Munchkins said that she was just so beautiful to them. Apparently, they were filming around Christmas time, and she said she wanted to buy them all a present, but she couldn't buy because it was something. It was like, 140 yeah, of them, right. Robert. <laughs> she couldn't buy them all a present, so she went down to the shop and she bought this massive barrel of of lollies and and brought them out and handed them out to all of these all these uh, all these extras and all the cast. And each and every single one of them got assigned. 8 by 10 Judy Garland headshot that she sat and she had them all printed on her own dime and she sat and hand signed all of them and then handed them out and she was like, I can't really yeah. afford anything. But here, and she took, the, the story goes that she took these lollies and put them in the middle of the yellow brick road on the set. Yeah, and yeah. And just said, help yourselves. Yeah. Anybody that wants them, it's Merry Christmas to everyone and here's my headshot as well. I can't afford anything big. I'm only a child. Yeah. Here you go. And I think that really speaks a lot. That speaks volumes, I think, towards her personality and the kind of person that she was and how giving and how inherently kind she was. Yeah. She was also a massive perfectionist. It was reported by a lot of people and I think this sort of went... Uh, hand in hand with a lot of the struggles she had is that she was always scared that she wasn't going to give her best performance and she put a lot of pressure on herself and more pressure than she probably needed to. Yeah, so it was said that later in her career when she moved from more like song and dance movies into like acting roles that the acting women of the time, Lana Turner and the likes, when she'd have to act against them, they were so used to doing just a couple of takes whereas Judy was used to working on film sets where she'd get many a take Mm. over and over and over again. And it caused a lot of friction, I believe, on set between a lot of her co-stars because she was such a massive perfectionist that she wanted to get it right every single time. Yeah, and it became became harder and harder for Judy to... You know, to work within the bounds you know, of the set. You know, a lot of people would say that she would turn up late, she would not be well, she couldn't perform. But then they said when she was on, she was on and she could do it. And she knew acting and she knew how to do something in 20 different ways and how to how to sell it and she had all of the bones of it, but I think she struggled to believe in herself all the time. And I think she, in the end, did, you know, on quite a quite a number of projects cause a lot of trouble. She got kicked off quite a few projects because people just weren't able to work with her. One project that she definitely didn't get kicked off on is A Star Is Born, one of the most iconic movies that she made. She won the Golden Globe. She got the nomination for the Oscar. Didn't win the Oscar. No, but there's a great story behind what happened on the night of the Oscars where she was obviously nominated for her star turn in A Star Is Born in 1955. She was in the hospital room 
Robert. <laughs> I don't know if you read this or saw this. Anyway, I have, but she was yeah. in the hospital room. She just given birth to no, Joey. No, she was just about to give birth oh, okay. to Joey. She hadn't given birth yet. And the studio was so convinced that she was going to win the Oscar for A Star Is Born, despite the press on it, despite the fact that they cut the movie so drastically and it no longer made sense and that it was losing more money than it had, <laughs> they'd funneled cost, into it. Yeah, it cost um, bank. And they were so sure she was going to win that they sent an entire camera crew to her hospital bedside as she was about to give birth to her son. And she to record her reaction. <laughs> yeah, and to record her reaction. And she eventually lost to Grace Kelly. Yeah. And the way that people talk about it, now is that as soon as she lost... Cut print moving on. Yeah, tear down those lights, tear down those cameras and basically didn't even say goodbye and out the door they were. And, like, what a devastating way to lose something. Yeah. And And then go on to have to push a baby out. Yeah, like, it's... (laughs) No wonder she was so messed up. Like, the way that she's been treated from the word go... After A Star Is Born, Judy undertook a number of successful TV specials with CBS, as well as a string of Las Vegas performances. And in the early 1960s, when she was in a really precarious financial situation, CBS offered her a $24 million deal. So by this point, she had nothing. Mm. She had declared bankruptcy by this point in her career. And this is the early 1960s. Right. So, yeah, they offered her a $24 million contract for a weekly television series of her own. So, like, a the Judy Garland show, it was called. So, mm. it was like a variety special where she would have guests on. She had a young Barbara Streisand. She would have Ethel Merman, Ginger Rogers, all of the stars of the time mm. of stage and screen, mostly stage, though, would come in and perform mm. with her and sing a little ditty. She had Liza on a bunch of times to sing some things. Um, obviously, the most iconic... One of the most iconic moments for me that I remember so vividly from my childhood is I had a... When you were a young kid in 1965. In 1965, <laughs> yes. Um, I had a, I had a, um, like a vinyl with a bunch of different like live TV performances right. of Judy that my nan used to play. And one of the ones was Happy Days Are Here Again, which was her and Barbara Streisand. Happy time, happy time. Very, very young, started her career. Don't think she filmed, or she might have just filmed Funny Girl at that point. No, we talked about this the other day. So She hadn't, had she? They hadn't filmed it. I think she was she talking. Was in, on Broadway. She was on the Broadway, it, yeah. and they were talking about the fact that it was going to get picked up yeah, as a movie, as a so movie. she hadn't filmed it. And we'll pop the clip up on the website because I loved this clip, because, not because of Judy, but because of Barbara. She is this gorgeous, she's this really shy, she was so green. It was obviously one of her first times on television. But so much attitude, though. <laughs> oh my goodness. Like, really going tit for tat with Judy on her own show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a really different version of Barbara Streisand than we're used to scenes. Pre-D Ship. Yeah, yeah, sure. And unfortunately, the show only lasted one season due to poor critic reviews. Well, apparently the head of the network was against it from the beginning and she was sort of up against it. Okay. This yeah. is really interesting. I didn't know this. Yeah, apparently the head of the network was never really wanted it to get off the ground. Never and sold on it. I yeah, love that. and she was kind of pushing up against it to... to keep it on air which as we know for judy is not a great no. it's, not, it's not a great dynamic for her to no. be working under so unfortunately yeah 13 episodes in that was it that was axe of course we need to talk about the fact that she toured our own very little old australia uh in 1964 she came down and toured she did it sydney and melbourne 
She did a couple of shows in Sydney that were a smash hit and in very Judy style, it was these, you know, these sensational performances that people loved and then she came to Melbourne and... Um, the wheels fell off. Was 70 minutes late and that's before, you know, Madonna and people made it <laughs> popular to be late. You would always start on time <laughs> and essentially booed off the stage because she just was in no fit state to perform, which, you know, we, we see quite a lot and is showcased in the movie, Judy, with Renee Zellweger. You get to sort of see that side of her in those times when she wasn't fit to perform and sadly that did happen here in Melbourne at the Forum Theatre, which I just think is crazy. Like, it's, that's down the road. Like, Judy Garland was there, maybe not in her best state, but she was she was there and I find Literally that fascinating. just down the road. She flew from here to Hong Kong and she almost had an overdose in Hong Kong, so you can tell that she's obviously not in a great place when she did come down to tour. One last thing before we move on to the next segment. The last movie that Judy Garland ever acted in was a movie called I Can Go On Singing. She played the character of Jenny Bowman. And this is a really iconic moment for me because Judy's credited for sort of helping write the script for this movie. And the movie is about this tragic actress who is really struggling to perform and live up to her expectations. And there is a clip from this movie. It's It's a full minute and a half and we'll play the whole thing for you. This is Judy acting... But essentially, she's talking about the exact struggles that she was going through at the time. Again. Listen, they are waiting. I don't care if they're fasting. You just give them their money back and tell them to come back next fall. Jenny, it's a sellout. I'm always a sellout. You promised. They're waiting. There's George, George and I doing 200,000. I, I know. Sure. I know. Just let them wait. To hell with them. I can't be spread so thin. I'm just one person. I don't want to be rolled out like a pastry, so everybody get a nice big bite of me. Mm -hmm. I'm just me. I belong to myself. I can do whatever I damn well please with myself, and nobody can ask any questions. You know that is not true, don't you? Well, I'm not going to do it anymore, and that's final. I, it's just not worth all the deaths that I have to die. You have, you have a show to do tonight. You are going to do it, and I am going to see that you do. Do you think you can make me sing? Do you think you can? Do you think George can make me sing or Ida? You can get me there, sure, but can you make no, me sing? No, I can't. sing for myself. I sing when I want to, whenever I want to, just for me. I sing yes. for my own pleasure. Mm, yes. Whenever I want. Do you understand yes, that? Yes, I do understand that. Just hang on to that, will you? Hang on to that. Well, I've hung on to every bit of rubbish there is to hang on to in life. And I've thrown all the good bits away. Now, can you tell me why I do that? No, no, I can't tell you why you do that, but I can tell you this. You are going to be late. I don't care. Wow. Let let me remind you, that's not Judy talking to an interviewer. That's not a piece of of Judy talking about herself. That's her playing a character. But it's so self-referential of some of the issues that she went through. Yeah, it really is, in this case, art imitating life. So one of the things that Judy referenced in an interview with Barbara Walters once is that she's a terrible eavesdropper. Do you enjoy being recognised? I'm sure there's hardly a place you can go to where you're not. I don't like it too much. I I wouldn't... uh, uh, It's just uh, sometimes a lack of privacy. It's hard to uh, just grow up in the public... (laughs) Uh, I, and I'm a terrible eavesdropper. I, I love to eavesdrop and peek through keyholes. And I've never peeked through one keyhole without finding somebody looking back at me. <laughs> it's terrible. I love that quote because she's almost saying it as if, like, 
the main reason it's really tough being famous is that I can't eavesdrop <laughs> as easily on people or peek through keyholes as people easily are as I'd like aware to. Of where you are. I love it. I, I really identify with that because I, I'm the, I'm the same. I love eavesdropping or hearing things I'm not supposed to hear or reading something I wasn't supposed to read. Don't leave me alone in your house because I will go through your drawers. So I get that side of her. It's, it is just this really beautiful moment of, of Judy just having a bit of a laugh about the position that she has been in her entire life. Mm. And I love that. I love it because she could be really like really pretentious about it and she's not. She's, she's not. Really sweet. And and she has real, that like, naughty streak a, to her. Yeah, it's a real naughty streak and it really humanises her. Okay, Tequila, let's talk fun facts that we have learned through this process of researching Judy. Thank you, Tony. Mary, did you know that the iconic number over the rainbow was originally almost cut from the film? Okay, I did not know that. Okay, (laughs) so MGM initially thought that it made the Kansas sequence too long and too boring and that it was degrading for Judy to be singing in a barnyard. Oh. I feel like the trajectory of Judy would be completely different without somewhere over Well, I don't know that that she would be the star that she was or have the kind of... The, the power that she that she had without it because that would, is her most iconic number. Would The Wizard of Oz have been the hit that it was? I don't think so. It seems trivial to say that any particular number from a movie would alter the movie so drastically. But when we're talking about The Wizard of Oz, Somewhere Over the Rainbow is the one thing that everybody knows about that movie. Yeah, and it's the one thing that most people know about Judy Garland. And it's a good thing that they didn't cut the song as it won the Best Original Song Oscar yeah, right. At that year's Oscars. And the recording was inducted to the Grammy Hall of well, Fame. So she kind of has an Oscar then. She kind of has an Oscar Well, in a also, way. you said earlier that she hasn't got an Oscar, but for her performance in The Wizard of Oz, she was awarded a special juvenile Oscar yes, statuette I did say this. Here you go. on the 29th of February 1940 for the best performance of a juvenile actor. And I'm right. not entirely sure that that was a category before that, but they gave her a... a it's kind of like a special It award. was a special... It was a special Academy Award, but it was yeah. never like an official... I still suppose she has an Academy Award. Ah, look, I don't think it counts and don't ever negate anything I've ever said. <laughs> ever again. Oh, you're off the podcast. Speaking of Oscars that she didn't win, allegedly there was only six votes between her and Grace Kelly in that Oscar that she lost for The Star Is Born. And that is the closest record difference of votes that hasn't been a tie. Wow, okay. I love that. I did not know that at all. Six votes. I mean, people were so sure that it was hers to win. God. Grace Kelly won for The Country Girl, which, of course, we all know and love very well. Yeah. Not at all. Huge hit. Huge hit. Really stood the test of time, The Country Girl. (laughs) Sorry Sorry to any Country Girl fans out there or Grace (laughs) Kelly fans out there, but... God, I wish Judy had got that one. <laughs> I feel like that would have been. And especially really for the performance that she gave within A Star Is Born as well. It's one of those like defining career moments. She has the song The Man That Got Away. And it's so beautiful. And it has been referenced so often since then. I mean, only just recently there was an episode of Will and Grace where Karen, when she was was she divorcing Stan and she went to this piano bar and she sang The Man That Got Away in almost the identical costume to what Judy was wearing during... Get out. Yes. I didn't And they, they did Judy like a big song. fantasy sequence. Yeah. And they cut out of it and she was back yeah. in her normal clothes. But oh. for that sequence, she was in the outfit. <sighs> That's like, giving me goosebumps. I've got to go back and watch that again. Karen sings a lot of Judy's songs. She sang clang, 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 clang with the, the trolley. trolley. We could have just said the trolley song. <laughs> We're really sorry that that happened right now. I apologise for nothing. <laughs> so by the time she was 28, she was unemployable. <laughs> you sound so happy about it. I'm just stating a fact. <laughs> also, the champagne might be going to my head. Champagne, sorry. 
She had parted ways with MGM and she famously said in an interview, there's no disgrace in being broke because she worked so hard. And I was like, I don't get that because you work so hard for all of this money. What is this about, right? Because she was always broke. And this happened after her marriage to Sydney Luft as well. She had no money. What was happening with all her money? So every person that was in charge of her career, so from her management to the people that she had on her staff, everyone, everyone was robbing her fucking blind, basically. (laughs) Yeah. So her management were taking her money and the money that they were supposed to be then paying the taxes on, they never did. Yeah. Yes. But she had so much IRS debt Yeah. Um, later in life because of the fact that these people just had been squandering her money and just siphoning it away. And with all of the everything that she was on, she had no idea really what was happening with her financials. And she just thought that the people that she had around her yeah. were going to look after her. And unfortunately, they did. Yeah, she did put her faith in a lot of, A, in a lot of other people, but B, in a lot of people that perhaps she shouldn't have. That leads really well into my next marriage, you know, which is that her fourth husband, Mark Heron, they were only together for five months because he wasn't aware of all this debt that she had. Rumours, rumours, rumours. But apparently he sort of found out that he'd, you know, had married into, you know, a huge amount of debt and sort of parted ways. But the interesting thing about this is it's not quite clear when her marriage to Sydney, her previous husband, had finished. So it's believed that technically her wedding to Mark Heron happened before her marriage with Sydney Luft had dissolved. So the legitimacy of that marriage has always been in question. It may never have officially legally been a marriage with Mark Heron. Judy Garland, at her tallest, was only 4 foot 11. 150 centimetres. That's tiny. So it's the same height as my nan. (laughs) My nan was a little woman. And she was very Judy Garland-esque in terms of like frail and very like always with the coiffed hair and always that. So that's very cute. It's funny to think, isn't it? But also for the stars of the day, I don't imagine I would have to Google this. I don't have any facts, but I can't imagine that Elizabeth Taylor was or like the likes of the people that she was performing with, Lana Turner and all that. I can't imagine they because they were all like statuesque women. Yeah. Which is part of what they say about Judy, which was quite hard for her back then because that's all she wanted to be was one of, one of these Glamazonian women that, that were getting all the roles at the time and she always hung out and associate with them as a really young girl. Because no. <laughs> she was a munchkin. <laughs> that seems offensive. <laughs> Judy was always considered, by all accounts, a wonderful mother. Yeah, which she is loved her kids. Her always. kids were first and foremost and that's, I know it's a biopic, but it's very evident in the movie Judy how much she loved her kids. But it's evident in a lot of the interviews that she did back in the day as well. And all of the interviews that have been done since with her daughter, Liza Minnelli, who... Never has a nasty word to say about By all rights, yeah. Never has a nasty word to say about her mother. For someone that had a difficult life, Liza finds it easy to... To regale the audience with stories of how how wonderful her mother was and how how great... Not the star Judy Garland was. She will always say that, but how great her mother was. And, and how much she cared for her kids. There was a great age difference between Lorna and Liza. Yeah, huge. Yeah. Um, to the point where when Lorna was still a child, Liza already had her career on Broadway. And they both grew up under different times of Judy's life and they still both attest. I mean, Lorna came towards the latter of her life as she was as Judy was in her decline. And they still both talk about her with such reverence, but obviously... Liza Nelly went on to have this huge career in her own right and still to this day talks to the press and talks to anyone who with will a listen with, with a reverence. reverence to and a, yeah, and not just a reverence, but like a, with a lot of love. With a lot of love you. towards her mother. So back in 2018, Liza made it clear to the public that she was not in support of the Judy 
film yeah. that was going to come out. She said outright that she did not approve or sanction of the biopic in any way shape or form that was obviously back in 2018 when she said this to entertainment weekly Mm. here's what she says now in 2020 about it she said i hope renee zellweger had a great time making it cut print literally moving on (laughs) and that was it it's not a lot to go on she doesn't give any she doesn't say whether she's seen it but from yeah from what i've i've seen and heard from liza talking about it she was asked on the tony carpet about how she felt about it and she's been very very quiet. Yeah, I'm not really shocked. I mean, the movie is based on a stage show, but the stage show and the movie focuses on sort of the last four or five years of her life. So it's not the most glamorous part of Judy's life. It's when she was really struggling with her touring and her live performances. And, you know, it was sort of, it was that journey towards the end of her life. So, I mean, that that alone, maybe I would sort of go, well, it would be nice to see something that maybe honoured some of the successes in Judy's career as well. For someone who loves, like, you know, the poetry of everyday life or, you know, certain little beautiful, you know, nods or little things that just happen that are just beautiful and you, you would write them into the story but you didn't need to because they're, they're actual real life. The day that Judy Garland died, there was a tornado in Kansas. Really? Oh, Yes. I didn't know this. Yeah, so there was a there was a cyclone in Kansas on the day, which you know, Kansas is prone to cyclones, so it's not okay. It's tornado alley, but regardless <laughs> of that fact, but I have tears in my eyes. Yeah. I'm, that's that's stunning. It's in a really itself. interesting nod, isn't it? To of okay. course, in the Wizard of Oz, it's a it's a tornado in Kansas that, that brings takes Judy to Oz. Yeah. Of course. Something that I have been keeping from you also that I'm very excited to share with you. you know how I feel about you keeping things from me, Robert. (laughs) Now, you may know about this first bit that I'm going to share with you. In Grand Rapids, where she was born, there is a National Judy Garland Festival every year. Now, it culminates on June 22nd, which is the day that she passed away, and it still runs every year. I went onto the website recently, and they were talking about how this year's festival has been postponed because of COVID restrictions, um, but they're looking forward to a bigger and better 2021 and it's home to the Judy Garland Museum and also her birth home which is being kept in in the same condition as when she was born there which is hello bucket list with that we have to go there one day oh I was just about to say is this the time where you tell me for my 30th birthday that you take me to the Judy Garland Museum no absolutely not (laughs) okay well I just got really excited on air for nothing I can't afford it and I won't but one thing they do have at the Judy Garland Museum which is almost as good as being there they have a yellow brick road there and tequila for $150 US, you can buy a brick outside the yellow brick road and print onto the brick whatever you want. So you get three lines and we're definitely pulling out money. We're definitely getting one of these bricks and we're dedicating it to this podcast. <laughs> divas on Divas. Tequila, I will buy Robbie, both of us a brick. A little message. Two a little bricks <laughs> on that yellow brick road each. I'm so excited. I think that might be the most exciting thing I've learned about from doing this whole podcast. So, so we're far. going to immortalise this podcast what? on the Yellow Brick Road at the Judy Garland Museum. I'm stunned. That's so good. Grand Rapids, Stop. where she was born. All right, Tequila, while you're topping up our mimosas over there, let's pivot. <laughs> pivot. Pivot. Let's pivot into why it is that we as gay men and we as a queer community love Judy so much. And I was like, why are you so obsessed with me? Well, Mariah. Straight Mariah. (laughs) Why are we so obsessed with you, Judy? Well, I don't think that we could do this entire segment here without discussing the fact that Judy Garland is probably the biggest of the gay icons that exist. She's almost 
the original of I the gay think, icon. I think so. Like, she's so inherently intertwined in gay history. I mean, to start with, it was a very common way to identify sort of back in the 60s and the 70s that you were gay in code by asking if you were a friend of Dorothy's. The friends of Dorothy was a euphemism obviously used between the LGBTQIA plus community to discuss their sexual orientation. And it dates back to World War Two. Yeah, right. Um, when, which is the 40s. Yeah, which is the 40s, which yeah. is when homosexual acts were illegal in mm. the US. You couldn't just come out and say, are sort you of, a Woolloworthder like I am? <laughs> no. <laughs> Fancy going to Wet on Wellington. <laughs> Fancy going to Wet on Wellington? Not at all. <laughs> no, not at all. So they, they came up with this code, are you a friend of Dorothy's? So it's very much within that Polari language that existed of the time that gay men had that secret code. <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, being a friend of Dorothy is a reference to her character that she played in The Wizard of mm. Oz. One of the other big connections that he's often made is that the Stonewall riots occurred the evening or in the early hours of the morning after the day of Judy's funeral. So it was said that a lot of people at Stonewall were really grieving the death of Judy that night. It was certainly a contributing factor to the mindset of the time. And, uh, you know, it's often referenced when we look back at, at the historic moment of the Stonewall riot. Of course, one of the most iconic figures during the Stonewall riots is a trans woman known as Sylvia Rivera and she's been quoted as saying when Judy passed away that it's the end of an era the greatest singer the greatest actress of my childhood is no more never more over the rainbow no one left to look up to and she was apparently weeping as she was saying this to a reporter yeah and then just a few hours later the police raided the Stonewall Inn, and the rest is... Gay rights. Gay rights. Actual gay rights. More recently, Judy's daughter Lorna has said that she was always a huge, huge advocate for human rights and that she would have found the riots to be very appropriate. Shana Alexander, who is an American journalist, said in the A&E documentary about Judy's life this. Gay men uh, felt terribly alone and they thought that she was alone too. They, they, they felt a... A twinship, some sort of sisterhood, brotherhood, with this lonely, struggling, romantic uh, figure. I think that's very true. I think there's definitely some truth to that. But I think it's also, I don't, I don't think we should just say, you know, she was sad, we were sad, let's get together. There's definitely this kinship, but there's also the fact that Judy really owned her struggles and that she sort of rose above them. And I think that the community at the time clung to that as well. It wasn't just this inherent sadness that they both had. It was also the rising above The rising that. above it and the rising above yeah. these adversities in life. Yeah. There's also, Judy was very outrageous and she was silly and the the way she performed was big and flamboyant and, you know, we still love characters like that these days. So there was that to love about I her. I think that's what makes our divas, though. Yeah. In terms of, like, the things that we're drawn to, they are these flamboyant characters. Yeah. Larger than life, you know. And she was silly. People have said that Judy was very good at being silly. You know, she found the humour in little things. And I think, you know, I can understand why our community would be a fan of that. The advocate once called her the Elvis of homosexuals. And in... <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, the Elvis of homosexuals. And in a 1967 review of Judy's concert at, at the Palace Theatre in New York, Time magazine observed that a disproportionate part of her nightly clique was gay. And two years earlier, Judy herself had been asked at a San Francisco press conference if she minded having such a large gay following, to which she responded, I couldn't care less. I sing to people. I sing to people, yeah. 
it was it was rumored that she would go out in LA to some of the gay bars. Yes. And, you know, she she may have been to the Stonewall Inn. You know, God, could you imagine? Which is great because she was a, she was such a night owl, and you can see how that sort of scene attracted her. She was someone that after her performances was wide awake and that's when she was at her most sort of alive. I could totally see her doing that. Do you know what I didn't know? Is that apparently the rainbow flag is based somewhat on Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Rainbow. Which, you know, when you talk about entrenched in gay life. Steeped in gay history, of course. Yeah. People often refer to as well the message of acceptance that the Wizard of Oz is. It's about you know, loving yourself for who you are, which is, you know, a narrative that we can relate to. The fact that the scarecrow never got his brain, he just got a doctorate, and, like, all these little things, and the the Tin Man never got a heart, he just got given a little clock heart. Like, you didn't need them to begin with. And Mm. you have, you had that power inside you the entire time, and I think, I I love that. That's Mm. a really beautiful message that sends out to the, that sends out to the world, and for a time that it was as well. I think, too, we need to touch base with one of the things that I find the most interesting about Judy's relationship with gay men is that her her father was rumoured to be a homosexual and engaged in affairs with men. Two of her husbands had been engaged in affairs with men and she married her daughter to an openly gay man. Liza Vanelli married Peter Allen, who was openly gay at the time that they got married. How lovely. What a wonderful kinship. <laughs> what a wonderful kinship, but it could easily have been a... She could have been a scorned woman. She could have been a... You know, it wasn't great for her father. They had to move a few times because of word getting out. The, it It wasn't great for her marriages. It ended a couple of her marriages, these gay affairs. But none of that turned her away from the community. It just kind of gave her more of a connection to the community. She's always been associated with a level of camp. And the the camp that is mentioned is... There's like these four pillars of what the the queer community looks towards in their icons. And the camp that the queer historian, Dr. Justin Bengry mentions is significant to Judy's like gay iconship. They define camp as irony, aestheticism, theatricality, and humor, four pillars that form the foundation of Garland's public persona, but also four pillars that are very heavily entrenched within the gay community. And her life story is basically a blueprint Mm for the modern understanding of what makes a gay icon like she was like we said earlier in the earlier in the piece she is the original gay icon from upbringing to death it helps us understand why a lot of gay men and a lot of the queer community these days look towards these icons because she built that yeah she was the original the original diva she's definitely yeah she's entrenched her the whole way and i don't i don't think we'll find another diva in terms of why we're so obsessed with you, this segment of the show, I don't think we'll find another diva that ticks as many boxes as Judy could. Okay, Tequila, each and every week we are going to take the listeners out with what we think is one super iconic diva moment, one qualifier that without anything else would still categorise our diva as a diva. I think that one that we've chose this week, which has been referenced by Liza on multiple interviews, and I think it's really interesting that our diva moment for this week, for our very, very first episode, comes from not Judy herself, but from a story that Liza recalls about her mother in Lake Tahoe, of all places. (laughs) I think it's very indicative of Judy. I don't think Judy would ever reveal such a moment about herself, but years and years after her death, Liza had this story to tell. Mama rarely, uh, and never around the kids, used profanity. 
But when she did use it, it was always funny, you know. And it always, like, well, we, what happened was we were in someplace crazy, like Lake Tahoe, and we went into the ladies' room. There was an old drunk lady in there, and it was just, you know, with <laughs> the sequin straps and one of those dames, and the. She said, oh, Judy, you're terrific. You're Judy, the rainbow. you got to always remember the rainbow. Then when she went into one of the stalls, the lady knocked on the door. She said, yes. She said, Judy, never forget the rainbow. God, it's helped me through so many crises. And when Mom came back, then she went up to her. The lady went up to Mom and said, I just wanted to say hello. And Mom looked at her and said, hi, which made me start to giggle. Now, and she's going on and on and on about the rainbow and about this and that and what a dear little girl and how this, this, this. And as we're going out, she had on this incredible long feathered boa somebody had given her as a present, which was way too big for her because she was tiny, you know. She came up to here on me. And um, the last thing that this lady said again was, don't forget the rainbow, Judy. And Mama turned and <laughs> threw the boa around herself and she said, how can I forget the rainbow? I've got rainbows up my ass. <laughs> I got rainbows up my ass. I've got rainbows up my ass. <laughs> I, I love like the diva, the diva-ishness of it when she's just throwing this feather boa as well. It's such a symbolic sort of gesture. I love the way that Liza tells that story. I remember when I saw that on the television, I filmed it on my phone and I sent it to you because I said, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's so funny. It is, and it's so <laughs> it's so indicative of the, the lightheartedness we were talking about before and how funny she was yeah and how irreverent her jokes were and she just she wasn't bothered by any of it and she was like i've got rainbows up my ass can I forget and you the can rainbow. imagine you can imagine judy saying that in her very in, in her very judy way in like her very judy way she was clearly on that day that is just about all we have for you for this episode of divas on divas it would be really great if you would follow us on our socials we have a fantastic facebook and instagram we do you can follow us on facebook at divas on divas or you can follow us on instagram at Divas on Divas. We're going to put up lots of fun stuff in between episodes up there. And also come and visit us at our website at divasondivas.com where we're going to pop up a bunch of great videos and longer versions of the things that we've played today. We're going to wrap up each and every episode from a moment from what we're going to be calling the Diva Vault. So this is a moment from their career, early or recent, that we really love and we believe needs to be highlighted. What have we got for every this week to kill her. Today we have a performance that Judy did just after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. She sang Battle Hymn of the Republic to commemorate his life at the close of the show, which was done at Studio 43 on the 13th of December. And cheers echoed throughout that studio and yeah. a standing ovation soon followed. This performance remains one of the defining moments of her career and of like television history. Yeah, it's this really beautiful thing where she was like, I can't finish my show without honouring this in some way and it's this really beautiful like heartfelt moment. You can imagine what it would have been like to be there. Until next time, remember, there's there's no no place place like like home. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord 
He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory.